If you have your Bibles, I invite you to turn in them to Isaiah chapter 9. Our text today will be verses 2 through 7. We've been working through this. Wasn't that great this morning? Love this time of year. We are pressing into this passage. We have been for the last two weeks. We will be for this week and next. Isaiah 9, verses 2 through 7. But really today we'll be focusing on two words of this. So the Word of God says this. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in the land of deep darkness, on them has light shone. You have multiplied the nation, you have increased its joy. They rejoiced before you as with joy at the harvest, as they are glad when they divide the spoil. For the yoke of his burden and the staff for his shoulder, the rod of his oppressor, you have broken as on the day of Midian. For every boot of the trampling warrior in battle tumult and every garment rolled in blood will be burned as fuel for the fire. For to us, for to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor. Mighty God, everlasting Father, Prince of Peace, of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. Let's go again to the Lord. Father, we come to you now and we ask that you would open the eyes of our hearts that we might understand and believe and have faith. I I pray, Lord, that you would move in this place this morning. Many come here feeling utterly unloved today. Lord, I pray they would leave here feeling utterly and eternally loved. I pray that you would move in this place, build faith, stoke the fire of our praise, that we might leave here rejoicing in you and in your salvation and the hope that we have in this time of year, the hope that we have even in suffering, the hope that we have even when death is nigh. We have hope in you. Help me to handle your word well and accurately. And I pray that it would be a balm to our souls. In Jesus' name, amen. So this morning, I'm going to begin by making a correction of sorts, a correction for something I said in my last sermon and in the sermon before it. Several of you reached out to me to share that you thought I had said something incorrect. And as unlikely as that was... You were right, and I knew it right away. So let me correct my statement, and then let me share why it matters. The wrong thing I said had to do with the original context of Isaiah 9. In both sermons, I made it sound like it was Assyria that swept away Judah into captivity. Let me say it correctly now. 
in the original context of Isaiah 9, which was written over seven centuries before Jesus was born, the Assyrian army, it was the Assyrian army, and its king were confronting Judah. They had already taken the northern kingdom, Israel, into captivity, and now they were marching on Judah. So far, so good. I I said that in both of my sermons, but I also said that Judah would eventually be swept away into captivity, and I made it sound very much like it was Assyria that would do that, and that was not right. It was Babylon that would do that, and they would do that a few generations later after this. As an aside, I love that several caught this mistake. I love that your biblical awareness was so high that you noticed it and it bothered you. That your love for the word was such that you went back and checked the original history. And I love that you brought it up with me and that you did so so kindly. This is how it ought to be. The scriptures are our final authority and pastors can be corrected by the scriptures. So I'm grateful for how that went down. And I want to say this because this is why it matters. I mean, because you could hear that and you could think, what's the big deal? Isn't that inconsequential? Assyria, Babylon. But it actually is a big deal. And I want to take a little bit of time on it. And this, this matters not just so that you can get the trivia question right. You see, Assyria was right at the neck of Judah. And all hope seemed to be lost They were facing certain destruction. They were a people who walked in darkness. But then God intervened. Not not only centuries later in the person of Christ, in the advent of Christ, but he actually intervened in that moment in history. God himself routed the army that was opposing his people. Many thousands of Assyrian soldiers, by God's judgment on Assyria and his deliverance of Judah, didn't wake up one morning. And finding all those dead bodies, the army retreated, and they went back home. And back home, that wicked king, Sennacherib, who had confronted Judah, boldly confronted God, he was murdered by his son as he worshipped a false god. So this original context matters. Because we understand Isaiah more fully knowing this. All hope for this people seems to have been lost. The people walk and dwell in the land of deep darkness. They have only gloom with a massive army about to breach their cities and slay them. But then God in his grace and his mercy rescues them. Isaiah 9 is absolutely about the ultimate and final rescue of God's people that would happen in Advent. It's absolutely about that. But it had a smaller and more immediate fulfillment too. One that those who originally read this poem would themselves rejoice in. And this is how God works. He is gracious and saving. And you know what? He's not merely or only gracious in the most ultimate ways. You can and you should trust him in the most ultimate ways. You should trust him with your eternity. He is gracious in the most ultimate ways. You should trust him to save you from hell. But you can also trust him in every way, even in the smaller, more immediate problems that you face. He is a good, good father, and you can trust him. And that's why this matters. That's what the sermon is about today. His name shall be Everlasting Father. And you can see this in action, both in the immediate context of Isaiah 9 
and in the wonderful and most ultimate fulfillment of this poem, the advent of our Lord Jesus Christ. As you know, this is week three of Advent, week three. The word Advent, as I've said every Sunday, means coming or arrival, and it refers to the coming of Christ. The season of Advent are four weeks leading up to Christmas, and the purpose is so that we might prepare our hearts for the coming of Jesus Christ. We take a whole month, once a year, and just focus on the massive implications of Christ's coming, and we do so as a people who dwell in the time between the Advents. The time between the Advents. I saw a funny meme this week. Uh, in the movie and in the book, The Hobbit, Pippin asks Aragorn, Aragorn whether they would stop for breakfast. Do you remember this? He's asking if they would stop for breakfast. And Aragorn, Aragorn answers, you've already had breakfast. But then Pippin responds famously, we've had one, yes. But what about second breakfast? So in the meme, I saw Pippin ask Aragorn when the advent will be. And Aragorn says, the advent's already happened. And you, you can see where this is going, right? Pippin replies, we've had one, yes. But what about second advent? You see, Christ is coming again. We live between the advents. He came and he will come again. This month is helpful as we look back to the first advent with faith in Christ, our grounds and our hope for rejoicing in our salvation, and we look forward to the second advent with our hope, our, this blessed hope of our coming Lord Jesus who will come and set all things right. And for Advent this year, we're pressing into Isaiah 9, 2 through 7. This is week 3. I hope that you have not tired of this amazing passage yet. I hope that you never grow tired of it. We've been zooming in on the four titles of Isaiah 9, 6. The first week, we saw that Jesus is the wonderful counselor. He is the infallible counselor who never leads us astray. He is wonderful. He always leads us on the way, and he himself is the way. Last week, we saw that he is mighty God. Jesus did not come as a mere human leader or human teacher. He is truly man. That's true. He's truly man. It was a true birth. And he is truly God. Only a mighty God can step in and rescue his people from their sin. Only a mighty God can do this work. And Jesus is mighty God. He is mighty to save. And we saw that last week. Today, our focus will be on the third title, the child that is born to us, the son that is given to us, is Everlasting Father, and that has some really wonderful implications for us, indeed saving implications. So let's dive into those two words. This whole sermon is on those two words. Let's begin with the theology of this. There is, of course, a distinction to be made between God the Father and God the Son and God the Spirit. We know that God is triune. He is ever three in one. The Son is not the Father, and the Father is not the Son, and the Son is not the Spirit, and the Spirit is not the Father. In the words of the old creed, we should not blend their persons nor divide their essence. God is triune, and yet God is one. It's a mind-blowing reality, isn't it? Try to wrap your mind around that. It's quite literally beyond our ability to grasp, but it is true and wonderful and taught in scriptures. The Son of God is not the Father. Yet Jesus could say in John 10, 30, I and the Father are one. 
Unity and distinction. One God and three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. One essence. Our God is triune. Our God, one God, our God, the God is triune. Are you still with me? It's hard, but it's wonderful. The theology of Isaiah 9, 6 is not that the Son is Himself the Father, as if there were no distinction. There's no blending going on in Isaiah 9, 6. There is not a dividing of essence either, though. Isaiah makes the divine essence of the Son very clear, right? His name shall be Mighty God. And Isaiah 9, 6 also makes it clear that the Son that is given and the child that is born to us will be an everlasting Father to His people. Christ will take a fatherly role over his people. In that sense, the son's name shall be called Everlasting Father. Maybe it would help us to understand this by pulling out some of the wonderful truths that I think are embedded in Christ's fatherly role over his people. So for our good this morning, I'll mention four of them. There's more, but four of them. As Everlasting Father, Christ protects, redeems, disciplines, and loves his people forever. I think those things are embedded in that third title. His name shall be called Everlasting Father. So, a good father protects his children, right? You know this. One of my jobs as husband and father in my home is protection. I make, I'm the one who makes the final rounds in the home at night, making sure the doors are locked and there's no candle still burning and nobody left a cookie on the counter those kind of things. If there is a noise in the night, I don't ask my wife to go check that out, right? There's, man, was that a window breaking? Would you go see what that is and call me if you need anything? No, I, I'm the guy, right? I'm the guy. That I take it as my responsibility to make sure my family is safe. When my young child is afraid, my comfort to her primarily is that I'm here with you. I am here with you. What I mean by that is that you don't have to be afraid because your father, your protector, is at hand. And that is the kind of care, only infinitely better, Jesus Christ has with his people. He protects them. Jesus himself used this kind of thought with a different image. In John 10, 11 through 16, he calls himself the good shepherd there. So let me read that. John 10, 11 through 16 says, I am the good shepherd. A good shepherd lays down his life for his sheep. He was a hired hand and not a shepherd who does not own the sheep, sees the wolf coming and leaves the sheep and flees. The wolf snatches them and scatters them. He flees because he is a hired hand and cares nothing for the sheep. I am the good shepherd. I know my own and my own know me just as my father knows me and I know the father I, and I lay down my life for the sheep. I have other sheep that are not of this fold. I must bring them in also, and they will listen to my voice. So there will be one flock and one shepherd. This is the work of Christ for you and for me, for his people. Like a shepherd who protects his sheep, the good shepherd lays down his life for us. The sheep are safe. The sheep are safe because of the shepherd. The children are safe because the Father is near. He is their protector. You can see that in our passage. Isaiah 9, you look back at verse 4. The yoke of his burden and the staff of his shoulder and the rod of his oppressor. You have broken as on the day of Midian. 
So the foreign oppressor had broken a window, was trying to come in to do them harm. But their everlasting Father, the Lord, would protect them by breaking the rod. Again, this is why the original context is so good to get right. The people were afraid. The king of Judah cried out. He cried out to the Lord for protection and for rescue, and he got it. He saw the fatherly protection of the Lord. Christ protects his people. The good shepherd lays down his life for his sheep. His name shall be called Everlasting Father, for he protects his people. And he redeems his people. It's connected. In C.S. Lewis's Chronicles of Narnia, Aslan calls the humans son of Adam and daughters of Eve. And he's pointing in that to our original parents, Adam and Eve. All people on the planet have descended from Adam and Eve. So there's a sense in which Adam is our father. And as fathers go, I think we can be honest and say that Adam wasn't perfect. He did some things right, gave some good names to the animals and so on. But he has some pretty significant missteps, like plunging the world into sin and death and so on. In fact, Romans 5, in Romans 5, we see that we are all identified with his first father, Adam, and his sin. All of us are identified with him in that, because he is our father. And thankfully, we are now, by faith, identified in Christ in his atoning death and his imputed righteousness. So listen with joy to Romans 5.15 and then Romans 5.18-19. It says, But the free gift is not like the trespass. For if many died through one man's trespass, much more have the grace of God and the free gift by the grace of that one man, Jesus Christ, abounded for many. And then verse 18, Therefore, as one trespass led to condemnation for all men, So one act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all men. For as by one man's disobedience the many were made sinners, so by the one man's obedience the many will be made righteous. Isn't that wonderful? Christ is the new and better Adam. As we are identified with our first father, Adam, and his sin, and our own sin besides, so we, if we are trusting in Jesus are identified with Christ. If you're a theology nerd, you know that to be called, we, many call this, some dispute it, many call this federal headship. The concept of one representing many. But even if you aren't a theology nerd per se, you don't have to remember that term. You can simply remember that the child who was born to us and the son that was given to us would be called everlasting father. And in that role, he would redeem his people. He would represent them in life and in death. God sent the Son of God into the world to redeem us. That's what Advent is about, ultimately. Jesus was born to save us, to live a perfect life, to fulfill God's law, and then to make substitutionary atonement for our sins and to rise up again in the resurrection. And we we have his imputed righteousness. The Advent is about the gospel, friends. The everlasting Father redeems his people. We are righteous because of Christ and because of Christ alone. Another fatherly role we are aware of is discipline, right? Fathers are the chief disciplinarians usually in their home, or at least they're supposed to be. 
If you love your children, fathers, you will be sure to discipline them in love, right? I mean, that's fathers do. Fathers discipline their children in love. On this point, listen to Hebrews 12, 5 through 6. It's actually a quote from Proverbs. It says, My son, my son, do not regard the, lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor be weary when reproved by him. For the Lord disciplines the one he loves, and he chastises every son whom he receives. God disciplines his children. He goes on to say that these trials we face are God dealing with us as sons. And I'm making this point this morning because I know that many of you are going through difficult things. Trials. Suffering. And our thinking sometimes is that if God loved us for real, like if God really loved us, we wouldn't have to endure these hard things. That is, if our Lord is an everlasting Father to us, then we shouldn't have to go through hard things. But often it is precisely because God is a loving Father to us that we go through these hard things. Your suffering, friends, is not a sign that God doesn't love you. The hard things we face are not signs that He is unloving. He is dealing with us as sons. Fathers discipline their children, and God does so out of love. And that leads me to the final embedded truth we're pulling out today. When we read in Isaiah 9, 6, that His name shall be Everlasting Father, the thought ought to be that ought to be most prominent is God's love to us in Christ. A father loves his children. That's how it's supposed to be, I know. Not all of us have experienced this in proper measure. Some of you don't have this image, this image from your own experience with your father, and I'm, I'm sorry for that. But you can still see this. Even that sense that you have that something is not right, something's messed up, and how your father didn't or doesn't show you love shows you that you intrinsically know this truth. It's an axiom. A father should love his child. A father loves his children. The everlasting father loves his children. Oh, fathers, if I can make a side note appeal to you, you have such a massive responsibility in being a father. I know it's a lot. Chief among those is to love your children. And one of the reasons we do that is so that they might have a visible, kind of flesh and blood example, imperfect as it will most certainly be, of what God's love looks like. Fathers, you are modeling God's love when you love your children. So fathers, I appeal to you, love your children. When we read this title in Isaiah 9, 6, we are comforted by God's fatherly love for us in Christ. He loves us as a father loves his children. Listen to a few verses to show this. Psalm 103, 11 through 13 says, For as high as the heavens are above the earth. Feel the magnitude of this. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his steadfast love towards those who fear him. As far as the east is from the west, so far does he remove our transgressions from us. As a father shows compassion to his children, so the Lord shows compassion to those who fear him. And Romans 5.8, God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. 
Christmas is what Advent is all about. It is about God's love for us. I mean, isn't that amazing? The creator of the universe loves us. When you read the Christmas story next week, or when you read Isaiah 9, you ought to be gobsmacked. You ought to be astounded. God loves you like a, like a father loves his children. The everlasting father loves us. You might have walked into this room this morning feeling utterly unloved in this world. Oh friend, I hope and pray that you leave here this morning feeling utterly loved. And not just by our people. Not just by this church as, as loving as we want to be to you. Something infinitely bigger going on here. God in Christ has utterly loved you and utterly loves you. Let that encourage your heart this morning. So in that title, Everlasting Father, there are these four things. At least, God in Christ is our protector and he is our redeemer. He disciplines us and he loves us. How wonderful is all of this? But there is a stone left to be unturned. There's a word that we have to ponder even more so that we might know and feel the weight of this this morning. This blessing. His name shall be Everlasting Father. That's a good word. Everlasting. I am my children's father. I have four kids. And I am to protect them and help them and love them. And I am to do that for all of my days. And I hope I do that well for all of my days. But here's the thing. All of my days isn't that long. Likely they will have lots of days where they will not have me. Being, a, being an earthly father is momentary. Having an earthly father is momentary. Many of you know that. Christ, though, Christ. It's not our momentary father. He is our everlasting father. His fatherly protection and redemption and love never end, ever. From everlasting to everlasting, he still loves us. We can never be unadopted. He will never be our former father. He will never be our ex-father. God will never be our ex-father. We will never be former children of God. His love is forever lasting. Oh, what comfort is invested in this single word. Everlasting. And in this single verse of the Bible, Isaiah 9, 6, what comfort is invested in these two words of this one verse, everlasting Father. Some of you might think it interesting to spend a Sunday morning, one whole sermon, preaching on only two words of the Bible, but my sense is that this is a small thing that we're doing this morning, spending 30, 35 minutes on two words, two words that we will spend all of eternity Countless millions of years, all of eternity, learning and exploring and growing into and enjoying the reality of these two amazing words. His name shall be called Everlasting Father. 
So, so that we sense the weight of this and appreciate its wonder, I want to conclude this morning by reading one of my favorite passages of Scripture. It will be displayed, and you're welcome to turn to it in your Bibles or read it on the screen, but you're also welcome to just listen. Listen devotionally if you'd like, maybe even with your eyes closed to these amazing words and let them sink into your heart and give strength to your soul and joy to your life. We have difficulties in this life and hardships and suffering, and some of you are even grieving the loss this year, a massive loss this year. Many of you are tired and weary. Let's hear these words and be encouraged in the everlasting love of our everlasting Father. I'm going to read to you Romans 8, 31-39. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare His own Son, but gave Him up for us all, How will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is it to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that was who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine, or nakedness, or danger, or sword. As it is written, for your sake we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No. In all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor power, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all of creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Father, we come to you this morning. And we are grateful that you love us. And you love us and loved us when we were unlovely. You don't love us because of lovely things in us. You love us because you are you. And we give you thanks. And Lord, I pray for any who who came this morning not understanding that reality, not believing and trusting in that reality, that you love us in Christ. Oh Lord, would you help them to see today. And I pray for those who, who are weary and tired this morning. May they leave here trusting, trusting, believing, hoping, rejoicing in your love for us in Christ. In Jesus' name, amen.